Canto 10 of The Paradise opens with a very beautiful two-line reflection upon the life of God. It reads in Mark Muser's translation, Looking upon his son with all that love which each of them breathes forth eternally. Looking upon his son with all that love which each of them breathes forth eternally. And if you listen to those two lines, you hear the oneness of God, the two-ness of the Son, and then the each of them, threeness, breathing forth eternally. There's the one gazing on the two, and that gaze itself becoming a third, which is breathed forth, the breath of the Spirit, breathed forth eternally. It's a very radiant couple of lines. And it leads then into Dante saying that this uncreated, ineffable one, this three in one, has made a world so radiant with its own life that if you look up into the heavens and contemplate what you see, you can see and feel, see with your inner sight, a mind and space that is full of this same movement, this same dynamic, this same life. Dante says you can feel God's presence even perhaps as you'd felt God's life in his previous lines. It's a bit like what is now called the fine-tuning or the anthropic principles that astronomers use. They notice how in all sorts of ways the cosmos seems to be balanced and tuned just right to enable life, conscious life, self-conscious life um, of our own to exist. And the difference perhaps is that whereas now astronomers are inclined to describe that in terms of laws and constants, as if things are fine-tuned, almost as if God has a kind of dial and knows how to balance it just right. In the medieval periods, this was experienced much more directly as a kind of life or vitality. It was the movement of things, it was the balance of things, it was the sympathy with which the heavens were experienced as reflecting divine qualities. And so Dante invites us to look up into the sky and to see the great circles of the heavens and the way that they cross, the tensions that they create, the way that they enable diversity and change, the diversity and change of the seasons as the sun pulses across the year, rising further higher in the heavens to the north and then lowering further south in the heavens in the winter, certainly in the northern hemisphere. And so he sees it almost as a kind of living and breathing organism, but one that has its own homeostasis, its own rhythms that enable our life, which are a reflection of the divine art. And much as all art is a reflection of the artist's life, so too we can feel a reflection of the divine art in the world around us. And so having evoked the fullness of divine life in the highest heavens, 
reflected in the fullness of life around and about us, the visible, sentient, sensing world. Dante says, stay at that table and eat some more. That's the metaphor that he uses, because he is now with Beatrice in the heaven of the sun. They've got there instantaneously, much as they had arrived in the heaven of Venus, because Dante has learnt to see the heaven of the sun, and so is in the heaven of the sun with that capability. And the thing about the heaven of the sun is that, like the sun in the sky, it is the brightest, fullest, most glorious, but also most immediate manifestation of the divine to us here on earth. Now this is why the sun comes after the three planets of the moon, Mercury and Venus. As it were, midpoint through the course of the planets, we've got Mars, Jupiter and Saturn to come yet. And you might just wonder for a moment why sun the sun doesn't come um, as the culmination of the planets. But it's because in the medieval mind and in Dante's mind, the sun is actually the midpoint. And that midpoint is the point where the visible light is most magnificent. But because they realised that the visible light was itself just an echo and reflection of the divine spiritual light, so the visible light is just a kind of threshold or an entry point to this deeper sight where the divine and spiritual light starts to become actually more bright when it can be seen with the inner eye. And that's part of the journey through Mars, Jupiter and Saturn that Dante will make. But now he's staying in the heaven of the sun to rejoice in this glorious manifest seeable light with our physical bodies, with our physical eyes, with our physical senses and experience. And it's a full, glorious manifestation of the divine, even as it carries in its inner life, the source of that life, which is the light of God. Um, the sun is a herald of the divine. Plato called the sun the child of the good. Um, we see it most clearly, and yet it's always good to remember that what we're seeing is itself just a mirrored reflection of an even brighter light, which we're invited to see. And Dante says quite clearly in this canto, we have to move beyond words now. We have to truly enter this felt sense of things and let that start to shine within us. This is part of the movement of the heaven of the sun for him. We have to allow ourselves fully to enjoy the light of the sun and simultaneously start to sense that deeper pulse that it can carry us towards and so strangely also let go of that gloriousness of the golden light that the sun brings very evidently around us. And that's actually echoed in this canto because at this moment, when they have arrived or recognised that they've arrived in the light of the sun, um, Beatrice 
invites Dante to enjoy it most fully, to give thanks to the angels of the sun, um, to rest in its gloriousness. And Dante does. He says that there has never been a soul more grateful for finding himself in this domain of existence, for knowing this life within himself. And then he adds, momentarily, he forgot that Beatrice was at his side. His mind was indeed so drawn to this deeper life that Dante the poet had captured for us in those two lines right at the beginning of the canto. Dante the pilgrim was so captured in that deeper divine life that he forgets that his earthly love, Beatrice, and the person who had so powerfully shone with God's love for him, he forgets that she's at his side. And then he, as it were, comes back to himself um, as he is, you know, as he is here in this heaven of the sun. Um, but, you know, like the visionary losing their vision when they come back to earth, um, he comes back to Beatrice. Um, and Beatrice has seen what's happened and she smiles. Um, she knows that she too is full of a divine life which is greater than her own life and that it's actually a joy for her when Dante has seen that greater life, um, enabled by his love for her. And it's also good that he has come back to where he's at here in the heaven of the sun. We can only take the next step when we take the next step that is in front of us. And he says that even here in this heaven of the sun, there were glories which he can't really speak about. There were gems which are too precious to bring back to earth. Um, I don't think he's saying that just to tantalise us. He's saying that to foster our desire to invite us to look there as well. And that is the aim of the Divine Comedy, not just to report and tell us, but to invite and bring us to these realms too. And then one of the souls who had been hidden in the light of the sun because they shine with the same quality of that light, though actually more intensely, more brightly, and so they can make themselves manifest by outshining even the sun's light. One of the souls starts speaking, and it's recognised that Dante is both capable, but also thirsty for more, and in the generous spirit of the souls of heaven, it wants to share its joy, its bliss with Dante, and so reveals itself. He, this soul, says that I'm going to show you a kind of crown that exemplifies this spirit of the sun. And what starts to emerge are a number of the greatest philosophers and theologians and mystics of the Christian world. And I think the significance of them appearing at this point is that these, these are the figures who here on earth have shone most brightly with the divine life in their words, in their reflections, in their images, in the nuance of all that they have tried to communicate and show in their life. And that's why they're here in the heaven of the sun they're here for a different reason than the souls who we have come across in the moon, Mercury and Venus. They were in those lower heavens 
if you remember, because their personalities, their characters had been flawed. Flaws that, as it were, a bit like the cracks that let the light in. Flaws that had enabled them to enjoy the fullness of divine bliss. But nonetheless, um, carrying you know, dialectical tensions or carrying tricksterish um, playfulness with the divine life. Um, whereas now, here in the sun, these figures, and in fact all the souls we're going to meet from now on, they're where they are because they did actually know the fullness of divine life during their mortal existence. And it's how they were able to communicate that divine life during their earthly lives that means that they have a special affinity to these different planetary spheres now. And so these philosophers and theologians and mystics are in the heaven of the sun because much like the sun that rises in the morning sky and shines brightly at the zenith, these were figures who were able to rise with God's light and cast its fullness across the minds and souls and spirits of earthly humans during their mortal lives. That is the manifestation that they start to show Dante now. And the soul that's spoken to him, the first soul, is Thomas Aquinas, the great Dominican scholar, relatively close to Dante's own life. Um, and it's very interesting that Dante should name him first, give him, in fact, the kind of key place, not just in this canto, but in the next cantos to come as well, because he was quite a controversial figure. Um, he was actually made a saint soon after Dante died, um, but his books had been put on the index of forbidden texts by the church. Um, he was very controversial for bringing in Islamic thought, Aristotelian thought, into the Christian world, enriched it greatly thereby. I mean, for my money, Thomas Aquinas is probably the greatest of the Christian theologians, even more so than St. Augustine, with whom, as it were, in the league table of Christian theologians, he jostles. Um, but the other spirits that show themselves now are going to have a mix of relationships with official doctrine, um, for example, there's Thomas Aquinas' teacher, Albertus Magnus, and he too was a great Aristotelian scholar. Um, there's going to be a much lesser known figure now, um, but who was known particularly for communicating directly the philosophy and theology of Averroes, the great Islamic scholar. Um, there's going to be figures like Bede, the Venerable Bede, um, the great history of the Eng historian of the English people, um, who's venerable but wasn't actually canonised, isn't actually a saint. Um, it's like Dante is recognising his full light here now. Um, there are other saints like Peter Lombard, whose famous sentences were a source of endless reflection for theologians in the medieval period. He's going to see Richard of St Victor, who was one of the greatest mystics and contemplatives of the medieval world too and widely recognised. Perhaps the most controversial figure who is shining in this high heaven is Solomon. Now in one way, why wouldn't Solomon be there? It says in the Bible that no figure was wiser than he, no figure exemplified 
in his life, the divine wisdom. And yet Solomon, of course, was not a Christian. Solomon is a Hebrew figure. And in fact, there was great debate in the medieval church as to where Solomon ended up in the afterlife. Dante is seeing things here with his own eyes. He's saying, look, I've been there. This is what I saw. This is what, as it were, by the meeting of the divine light and my light was revealed to me. And he's giving it fullest expression that he possibly can in this canto. I think of all these appearances, not just as a kind of roll call, um, a kind of divine lineup of the stars of the theological world. Um, when I was reading it through, I was reminded actually of one of my own theology teachers um, who would turn up at the beginning of a lecture and would say, okay, today we're going to think about Thomas Aquinas. And then he would speak as it were in Thomas's voice. He would describe God, he would describe the cosmos as Thomas himself did, did um, in his works. And what it conjured for us was actually the spirit of Thomas Aquinas, the richness and the glory of that voice, through which we then, as we sat there in awe of the ability to do this, through which God's light, God's voice, might just be faintly echoed, faintly caught sight of us as we try to wrestle with what we were hearing. And so this is the presence of these figures as much as just the naming of these figures. Um, and their presence is the glory of the sun because it brings to us the glory of the divine. And then the canto ends with another beautiful extended metaphor which links the reflections on the astronomy, the celestial heights at the beginning of the canto, with this life which has been manifest before us. By using the image of a clock that chimes, um, you know, it is a mechanical device, a clock, but what it marks is a deeper life, which is the turning of the heavens, and which of course is the the, the pulsing light and darkness of the divine life that the heavens themselves are but a reflection of. And Dante describes this as the clock chiming in the morning, which is the moment when the bride wakes up to the life of the bridegroom lying beside her. And this again is a multi-layered metaphor. And at once it's a kind of quite a safe metaphor in a way because particularly the medieval mind would have heard when Dante says bride, would have heard church, and when he said bridegroom, would have heard Christ, would have heard God, um, and the sense that the church and Christ were married as a bride and a bridegroom was quite a prevalent one. But he pushes it. Dante's always going for the in life, always going for the subtlety. And what emerges actually is one of the most erotically overt images in the whole of the Divine Comedy because the clock is said to be pulling and thrusting and pulsing with its mechanism but of course clearly alluding to the love which a bride and bridegroom might enjoy in the early morning light as the sun, the, the sun of God's light, rises in their hearts as much as in the world around them. It's appropriate here because having contemplated the nature, the inner heart of erotic love 
in the heaven of Venus. He's now able to enjoy that nature fully and feel how its dynamism speaks and channels the dynamic of God's love. The love swells within them, Dante says. It radiates harmony and their joy becomes one with the love of eternity. Even as this canto has taken us on a great journey from the highest divine sublime life of God breathed and shared amongst the persons of the Trinity, cascading down through the heavens, seen most clearly for us with mortal eyes in the light of the sun. Now Dante in the heaven of the sun, detecting the inner pulse, the inner swelling, the inner joy of that life. As he gets used to this life and so becomes capable of seeing more, perceiving that depth and so rising further into the heavens.